Kara. Hey, Chris. We have another overachiever on our podcast. Bonnie Kaiser, Dr. Bonnie Kaiser is an associate professor and vice chair of graduate studies, uh, jointly appointed in the Department of Anthropology and Global Health Program at the University of California, San Diego. Let it out, Kara. Looks like you're about to explode <laughs> I was there. It was a big yawn and I was trying to cover it up. Bonnie focuses on um, elucidating cultural models of mental health and illness and exploring their connections to care seeking, developing and adapting measurement tools for cross-cultural research and interventions, improving cultural adaptation of global mental health interventions, and critically exploring concepts of trauma risk and resilience. Her scholarship balances critical and constructive engagement in the field with global mental health, advancing both theory and psychological anthropology and practice in global mental health. She conducts rigorous mixed method studies with multidisciplinary engagement, drawing on her training as an anthropologist, epidemiologist, and global health implementation scientist. Her research balances deep ethnographic engagement in her primary sites in Haiti and Kenya with mixed methods and multi-sided research in other global regions, including Nepal, Ethiopia, and Nigeria. And I go to the trouble of actually reading line by line every single part of her bio because if you look at her just go to google google scholar and look her up you will see that there is at least one article she's published probably in the last two years that is linked up with every single thing she says she does on this list she is one of the most prolific anthropologists i have had the honor to meet so we are bringing her on right now that is probably the most impressive intro we've ever done yeah Bonnie, I just, how are you? Good. How are y'all doing? Good. Can you hear us? Yes. Of course, you know me. This is Kara. Hi, Bonnie. Nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you. Thanks and for I was joining just us. I was just reading your bio and, and saying, I uh, usually don't read bios completely. I usually gloss them. But in your case, you have at least one article to link up with everything you say you you like to do or do in your in your bio. We're not going to cover them all today, but I'm encouraging listeners to go look at your Google Scholar or your or your webpage, maybe if you have them all up there. I use Google Scholar, but very impressive. <laughs> Thank you. That's also, my way of trying to embarrass you right out of the gate. <laughs> Welcome so much to the Sausage Science Body. Thank you for taking the time today to join us, uh, especially at what we all know is a busy and difficult time of the semester for everybody. Uh, so we start our podcast the same way with every single person we interview, and that's trying to get to know a little bit about you as a person and your journey into becoming who you are today. Uh, and so let us know how it is you got into anthropology and, and how you kind of brought in so many different threads of within and outside of anthropology to do this multi-site, multidisciplinary work. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama to two Australian parents and my dad taught uh, in a school of optometry and he would sort of spend evenings working on these really intricate PowerPoints. And I remember being like, wow, I really don't want to do that for a living. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, I think I literally went into... Um, Just as a, uh, I have to interject that when COVID started, Bonnie's PowerPoints to like uh, tell everybody what was going on that she shared were like spot on and extraordinary and elaborate. So apparently you picked something. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I mean, the joke was definitely on me. Uh, that's what I spend a lot of my time doing now. But I, I mean, I think I went into college kind of like, I don't think research is for me. Um, 
not really knowing you know much of what it consisted of and then i took an anthropology course sort of on a whim with jim mckenna and i think he was you know responsible for like most of the anthropology majors at notre dame <laughs> so that's how i got hooked um and then i did a couple field schools um one with augustine fuentes in gibraltar um, studying the macaques and found i was more interested in kind of talking to the people the tourists who were there interacting with them and yeah, I mean, just was really drawn into kind of interviewing people, um, decided to go to grad school and sort of fell into a project in Haiti. I was actually planning to work in Kenya, um, continue a, a project I had started on um, HIV and food insecurity when I was in undergrad. But I, I was doing an MPH and kind of had this extra summer open and needed to do a project for uh, the School of Public Health and I guess I just sort of fell into this mental health in Haiti project that has now become really focal <laughs> to my career. So it was all, yeah, I mean, nothing was planned, <laughs> which I think is probably most people's story. Um, That's fascinating. I didn't even know you had the Notre, I don't, I didn't remember that you had the Notre Dame connection. So Kara is, is of course at Notre <laughs> Dame and, and we, yeah. we all know Jim and Augustine very well. So, um, and now you're at, um, so now I'm at UC San Diego. Um, I did a postdoc at Duke after doing grad school at Emory. And then I started here at uh, UCSD a little under four years ago. And so the great irony then that, that you didn't think you would uh, be interested in, in research. Or t to me, I, I think you're a minority, um, although we've talked to a few people uh, who have some amazing programs of research, but I think you have been really successful and what we all idealize, which is a multi-site team-based type of approach to research. And so the upshot of that, and I'm gonna, I have to read a little bit because uh, of the details here, but to give a listeners a sense of this, since the beginning of 2020, you've published 26 articles, which is enough for a full professor at most institutions, of course, but you're, um, and, and bear with me, everybody, your first author on quote unquote, only three, right? With lots of friends of the pod as co-authors, we, we should know. Um, despite yet being, I would say you're an associate professor, but I happen to know that you're, you know, you're you haven't been okay, you're still somewhat junior in the field according to some metrics, but according to, to your research scholarship, not at all, right? So um what I'm interested in is how you have managed this this sort of amazing team approach and, and move forward so many projects. So how does that, how does that, what's the, we always joke on, on this, the sausage motif. So what, how, what are the ingredients? How is that sausage made? <laughs> uh, well, I guess the Haiti project that I worked on was the first um, real team-based project, um, you know, as I was starting out in grad school. And I think it just made me realize how valuable it is to be combining different disciplines and, you know, different kind of areas of expertise and just realizing how much more you can do, um, you know, as opposed to kind of a lone ethnographer, we were working with a team of um, US-based students and a team of Haitian researchers. And it was very exploratory, um, but we were able to, you know, look at what are the ways that people conceptualize mental health and illness and how do they seek care. Um, we adapted a lot of assessment tools that we then used in these community-based um, surveys. And so I think just, you know, recognizing how 
really pulling together those different methods that, you know, different people had expertise in just let us say a lot more and, you know, have a lot more insight about these different aspects of experience. And, you know, I personally, you know, have done projects in like individually or independently and have done team-based projects. And I just much prefer working with the team. Um, partially just sort of having folks to bounce ideas off of, you know, feeling like it's not all just on me. Um, but again, I think the interdisciplinary component is so key. Um, now I work a lot with clinicians. So um, Eve Puffer at Duke was my postdoc advisor, as well as Brandon Court, who's a um, psychiatrist and anthropologist. And so really working with those teams where it's clinicians who are already very culturally oriented, or, you know, very much buy into kind of what anthropology can bring to the table and critiquing the way that um, psychology and psychiatry often approach mental health and illness, uh, really valuing the kind of the methods and approaches that anthropology contributes. And, it, you know, for me, letting me kind of go where I wanted to with, with different projects was really valuable. Um, so yeah, I, I don't ever want to do it differently, I suppose. Um, you know, I find it really valuable and um, enjoyable working with teams. And so I think that really comes through in a lot of your work and that shows up. And one of those, and especially this kind of interesting cross-section between anthropology and psychology or psychiatry, uh, is the work that you've conducted in, in Haiti, which you've co-authored uh, an article in Culture, Medicine, and Psychiatry entitled Explanatory Models and Mental Health Treatment. Is Voodoo an Obstacle to Psychiatric Treatment in Rural Haiti? So one, could you tell us a little bit about that work, uh, You know what that field work is actually like and what kind of research you're actually conducting? and then. Two, uh, tell us the difference between anthrocentric and cosmocentric views on health and disease and, and how you actually get at that in this study. Yeah, so this is a um, paper led by Nayla Curry, um, who's a physician, a psychiatrist. And um, really, I think that study was motivated by our team preparing to go to Haiti for the first time and hearing everyone kind of say, oh, you're studying mental health. You know, it's important to know everyone thinks mental illness is caused by sent spirits, which is like a curse, uh, you know, or otherwise kind of supernatural causes. So they're not going to want to go to biomedical providers. That was just a really common refrain that we heard, um, you know, from folks, you know, in the U.S. or Europe who are working in Haiti, from scholars, from kind of wealthier Haitians who were kind of commenting on folks in rural areas. And so we decided to sort of test that because we'd didn't really believe it, I suppose. Um, so we did a lot of ethnographic work um, with uh, individuals who are experiencing mental illness, their families, their communities. Um, we spent a lot of time in clinical settings. And what we really found is instead people seek care really pluralistically. So they'll kind of almost simultaneously go to the Ugan or the voodoo um, priest or the mambo, which is kind of voodoo priestess, although Karen Richmond argues that we should say shaman, that's a more appropriate term, um, you know, and they'll go to the doctor and, you know, they'll go to friends and family and the church um, and they'll sort of see what works. That's not unique to mental illness. It's sort of true of a lot of illnesses. And with mental illness specifically, what they'll often find is that the biomedical 
clinics aren't really able to address their problems other than maybe addressing some of the symptoms. And when we talk to the doctors and nurses, they would say like, yeah, we're not trained in medical school, um, you know, to diagnose and treat mental illness. So often it's sort of not on their differential diagnosis because they feel helpless to, to really help their patients. Um, so yeah, I mean, we found that it's not at all that people kind of have this preconceived idea of what causes mental illness and then that drives care seeking. Um, it's really about pluralistic care seeking and then kind of dissatisfaction with certain kinds of um, care seeking and, you know, after the fact, sort of seeing what works and applying explanations in that way. And I think that's a really common thread in, you know, kind of medical anthropology broadly is, you know, folks in the U.S. or Europe are often expecting that people have this like singular explanation for something, you know, like it's only going to be supernatural, it's only physical or, or whatnot. And, um, you know, the idea that there can be the, these multiple explanations at once and that that's perfectly normal and acceptable and believable is just sort of um, unfamiliar <laughs> to a lot of us. So yeah, I mean, that was a really, I think, a fun project to pick apart this narrative that we were hearing, but also you know, it was one of many examples of, I think, these problematic and often very racist views of uh, Haiti and of voodoo that are just really oversimplifying or blaming and not looking at the really complicated ways that, you know, people don't have a lot of options in terms of access to care. And, you know, again, they're, they're seeking care essentially everywhere um, and finding a lot of it unsatisfactory. So one of the things I find really, really interesting about your work is your methodological refinements that you can see happening all over the place on your, your CV and in your, your papers. And I, I find this particularly interesting as someone who, you know, I wanted to study voodoo when I was an undergrad. I was in Brooklyn and I lived in the middle of a, the largest Caribbean neighborhood in the world outside of the Caribbean. And Mama Lola was right down the street and uh, there's a famous uh, um, eth uh, biographical ethnography of her for those unfamiliar. Um, and then I ended up studying Pentecostalism and speaking in tongues. So some of the possession um, behaviors are similar uh, back and forth. And I ended up, for my dissertation, creating a questionnaire that I, I never went through the, the psychological metric creating processes to validate and stuff. And, I, and so what I'm really impressed with is is how much your team has done to validate and and explore and develop new tools and i wonder i just wonder if you could you could speak to like what that process is like um what prompts you to do those things is it about getting it published is it about sharing it is it necessary to move the project forward how does that work yeah and i I consider the kind of measurement or assessment tool work to be one of the sort of main thrusts of my research. And I think one of the most interesting ways that team-based work is really, you know, central or valuable in um, global mental health. So we, I guess, combine what are often sort of standard approaches to assessment tool um, validation. So you know, the, the quote unquote gold standard is, you know, having a clinician do a, a kind of diagnostic validation of an assessment tool. And so we combine that with things like um, paying attention to ethnographic validity or essentially do, do people's lived experience, you know, match what these tools are trying to measure. And a lot of the motivation for doing these really rigorous cultural adaptation processes uh, or just totally developing new tools from the ground up was just finding that the existing tools were 
not matching people's experiences, you know, or um, either some of the questions didn't make sense when they were initially translated. Um, you know, they were accidentally asking about something different or something confusing. But also, I would say the bigger issue is the tools are starting, you know, from this set of symptoms, at least in the case of mental health screeners, that, you know, were kind of put together in the US, in Europe, and missed important aspects of what it means to experience mental distress in places like Haiti or Kenya. And so this combination of, you know, adapting existing screening tools, you know, taking the items that kind of work or after a little bit of, you know, adjustment work and kind of making sure that we're also, uh, you know, finding out what else needs to be included, like what's missing from that, that set of items. Other things like wealth, you know, so thinking about the uh, demographic and health surveys have these wealth, you know, indices that are often used where I work in Haiti, if I just use the standard, you know, set of assets that are asked about on those um, on those tools, you know, almost no one would, you know, have kind of anything, and so I wouldn't that wouldn't be useful, you know, to get at any kind of variability. So, you know, again, sometimes it's just how do we better create tools that reflect people's experiences. Um, and so they're useful, you know, if if we just go about translating something. Often it's just totally missing what we're trying to measure, uh, you know, miss missing the, the lived reality. Just a quick follow up on that. So I think this is important for, for listeners. It would be important for me because I think I've developed many questionnaires for research and maybe included them as appendices. But how do you go about finding where to publish these refinements? Is, is that part of your team's work, knowing like what avenues to pursue because you're in lots of different journals. So I'm a little bit curious as to how that is uh, approached. Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's a combination of kind of having a sense of who would want this work and then also being told no by the places that don't want it, you know, or, or being told like the sample size is too small or whatnot. Um, you know, and I, I will say a lot of our sharing of these tools, although, you know, we do include them in the publications, it also just comes about through, you know, collaborations or folks kind of hearing about it. So in Haiti, for example, Partners in Health, Amila Sante, the World Bank, other groups have um, used the tools that we adapted um, or developed there. And so, you know, it's sort of sharing or disseminating via different routes. Some of our work in Nigeria, you know, was with different NGOs that were interested in developing mental health care programs and realized like, you know, they needed to have tools to identify who's in need of care, and that essentially needs to be happening at the same time that they're trying to develop the care provision, you know, develop the care programs, you know, and then those organizations were already, you know, extremely active and well-connected and, you know, so they're able to share the tools. And I think often that's a lot more effective way to get them out into use than, you know, publication, although obviously sharing it through publications is important as well. And I think, you know, one of the one of the things we often try to talk about in our publications is how to think about the trade-offs of, you know, sometimes this is really time consuming, um, you know, where you have kind of an anthropologist and um, researchers with linguistic expertise and clinicians all kind of sitting down together and looking at our data and thinking about, you know, what can we do with this? How can we best adjust this item because there's essentially never going to be a perfect way to word it. But how do we kind of do the best we can so that it's the most, you know, understandable, relevant, you know, acceptable to people to kind of talk about whatever the, you know, whatever the question or concept is. So sometimes, you know, you take 
this really slow process um, if you have kind of the luxury of that time. Sometimes you do sort of a really rapid version of that. But I think kind of putting out there like here are the options and making it clear kind of what the trade-offs or the choices are so people can best apply those to their particular projects. You had made a comment in your in your previous answer about the way people experience things. And so perhaps the way we see what's happening is not necessarily what's actually going on with an individual's experience. And some folks, including the, the recently deceased Paul Farmer, which we were all devastated to hear about that, suggested that voodoo beliefs may lead the mentally ill to seek redress through uh, hoongans and mambos rather than mental health professionals. But you point out that there is a real importance to seeking out that kind of care. Um, and so perhaps you could tell us a little bit how there is this emotional processing facilitated by voodoo beliefs and, and the way it can be protective. So tell us a little bit about that part of your research. Yeah, so that's a um, paper with Reginald Fizeme, who's a mental health doctor in Haiti. And what we were really thinking through is kind of inspired, I would say, by um, our original research, where people would talk a lot about the concept of sent spirits or the way that um, you know harm can be sent via an ugan, or really it's um, called a boko or a sorcerer, I guess, in this case, um, but the way that harm can be sent kind of what, from one person to another, and that that sounded very anxiogenic. So we were kind of like, okay, I would imagine if people really see themselves as kind of at risk of this happening to them, that they would have worse kind of, you know, mental experiences of mental distress uh, or particularly anxiety. And what we found was actually that wasn't the case. Uh, it was more the opposite, which is always, I think, really interesting as a researcher to have your hypothesis just be totally wrong. And it's, um, I don't know, kind of encouraging <laughs> to be sort of pushed in these new directions. Uh, but so we decided to explore a bit of like why that would be the case, why it might be sort of protective to have this, um, you know, sense that a sense spirit is a really, you know, is a um, real possibility, I guess, for explaining misfortune in one's life. And to clarify, it wasn't so much that we were looking at like people who believe in sense spirits and people who don't, because the vast majority of people in Haiti, it's just sort of accepted as reality that this is a thing that happens. You know, it's not so much like a belief, um, it's just accepted reality. And instead, what varied was the extent to which people kind of perceive themselves as vulnerable to a sense spirit. And um, through my ethnographic work, um, what's, what seemed to kind of come out is people, you know, really don't have a lot of um, control over preventing misfortune, you know, in, in their lives, um, you know, through various forms of structural violence, um, people are really vulnerable to, you know, effects of whether it's, you know, food insecurity and kind of daily stressors or, um, you know, natural disasters that are obviously, you know, not only natural, there's a lot of man-made aspects of the, the real effects of those. So having a way of explaining misfortune that wasn't it's my fault or I didn't do enough, but, you know, this was external, this was sent to me, seemed kind of like a way of displacing blame from oneself. Um, so, for example, I talked to a woman whose daughter had died and, you know, she made sense of it as being a sent spirit. And obviously she was grieving, 
Um, but that's very different than another woman I spoke to who essentially conceptualized her daughter's death as her own fault, that she couldn't do enough for her daughter. So on top of the grief of losing her daughter, she also had this kind of blame or guilt, um, you know, that it was her fault. And so to me, that's how it makes sense that sent spirits as a very real way of making sense of misfortune can be somewhat protective in terms of one's, you know, experiences of mental distress, you know, again, in the context where folks really don't have a lot of, you know, kind of control over preventing these misfortunes from happening. It, it reminds me of the interview that we just did last week with Glorious, thinking of, of the layers of burden and, and how we can somewhat roughly quantify the burden that people are experiencing. We talk about it with obesity research all the time, but the double burden of being, you know, extraordinarily poor and then, you know, or losing a child, I, maybe it's a triple burden. And then thinking that you're the one responsible for it is, is another layer of guilt. And uh, the data stacking it up against things like adverse childhood events or, or depression, like it was clear that those multiple burdens have significant downstream costs and and those costs get passed on too so so really really um interesting you you've written on another topic that i find uh equally fascinating which is you call an idiom of distress uh thinking too much and and i personally self-promotion here wrote a whole chapter in my forthcoming book about your work and that of uh joe weaver and sarah lewis sort of integrating the work you guys have done to think about perseverative thinking. It's, it's my word, not not yours. I wonder if you could explain to us what thinking too much is and how it's an idiom of distress and what an idiom of distress is for those who don't know. Yeah, so Mark Nectar originally sort of coined, I guess, um, or defined idioms of distress. And it's really, you know, these culturally situated ways of making sense of, um, experiencing and expressing distress. So I think to me what's really important is that it's not just finding different terms for the same thing. You know, it's not like how do people in Haiti talk about depression, you know, but but the imagining the concept or experience itself to still be exactly the same, just with a different word. Um, you know, it really is that the experience itself can vary in important ways. And often it relates to how folks conceptualize kind of the person, um, how the body works, uh, you know, and things that can go wrong with it. So with thinking too much, which was really the most common one that we came across or heard about in Haiti, that people describe this inability to stop thinking about this one problem, um, you know, that's just, uh, they're not able to solve it. You know, it's not thinking about solutions or working towards solutions. It's just sort of unable to pull their mind away from it. And often people are described as kind of, you know, sitting with their head in their hand, they're sitting alone, you know, they're, they sort of stop eating and sleeping as much. Um, they, you know, disengage socially. And so there are a lot of these aspects that look a bit like depression or look a bit like anxiety, and they're not exactly the same as, as either. And so Emily Harrow's, um, who's a researcher at John Hop Johns Hopkins, um, she and I decided to do a systematic review of thinking too much because when, like, for example, when I would present on this work from Haiti, people would always say like, oh yeah, thinking too much, I see that here, I see that there. Um, and we found essentially this is a really common, you know, expression or way that people communicate about distress. And there were some 
definite commonalities about the experience itself. Um, but one thing that we wanted to emphasize is, you know, not just saying like, oh, okay, this is the exact same thing everywhere around the world, but really recognizing the heterogeneity among thinking too much idioms of distress. Um, and, you know, so this is both an important, like I said earlier, example of what, you know, US-based or European-based assessment tools are missing. You know, that this is a really common idiom of distress, essentially like everywhere else in the world, um, you know, but it's not in common screening tools for depression or anxiety or whatnot. Um, so it's both important to recognize it, but also not to you know, say, okay, now this is how we're going to talk about depression, for example, or to assume that it's the same everywhere, um, you know, really to recognize that there is heterogeneity across settings, you know, and within settings um, in terms of what that experience means. That is some really cool stuff. And I know Chris is just like super excited and jazzed about everything that you do because it relates so well to his work. But let's start thinking about moving forward just a little bit. Uh, so you have so many projects going on. And so I guess the question is, what's happening next and where and what's going to the focus be? So I'm, what, I guess I would say one of the main projects that I'm working on right now is growing out of the project with Eve Puffer in Kenya and that's really looking at the ways that global mental health projects understand the role of lay counselors, um, who, essentially community health workers who are trained to deliver mental health care. Um, so what are the ways that these projects, which are really becoming numerous around the world, either take seriously or kind of ignore expertise that these lay counselors bring to the projects? Uh, and I worked on a paper with um, Angela Leocata, who's a grad student at Stanford, um, and Eve Puffer, comparing a couple projects that we've both studied and really looking at like one of the projects, Thinking Healthy Program um, in Goa, India, had this really structured script that um, the lay counselors would use. Uh, and Eve Puffer's project, which is called Tuka Pamoja, um, which is based in Kenya, was really, really flexible, essentially. So encouraging lay counselors to kind of bring in and introduce new material. And so we were looking at, like, what are the pros and cons, essentially, of those two different approaches, but also how, um, like, what does that tell us about the role of the lay counselor and how can we make recommendations about, you know, what, um, what can global mental health projects do to really value and take seriously the expertise um, of lay counselors. And so what I want to do now is kind of a broader comparative project in that area. Um, and I, and then I would say the other thing that I'm working on is like <laughs> being kind of the anthropological consultant or the qualitative consultant on a lot of dissemination and implementation science work, uh, mostly at, at UCSD, which is really interesting as a way to be working in new areas. And it's pushing me, I think, as an anthropologist where I'm used to having kind of place-based expertise to now be working, you know, kind of briefly in these new contexts, you know, or on these new research areas that I don't know as well or I'm not as comfortable with and just sort of, you know, have to say basically like, here's the methodological thought process or decision-making process. And then, you know, you who knows the linguistic context, the cultural context, et cetera, we'll need to figure out how to kind of best apply that or how to make decisions with it. So that's been a really interesting and challenging, I think, new direction. You know, I find it really valuable as a way to kind of more rapidly translate research into um, clinical care, you know, and other applications. For example, one of the projects I'm working on is focused on oncofertility. So basically fertility preservation um, for 
young adults with cancer. So, I mean, that, you know, that's an area I never imagined I would work in, um, you know, but it's been really interesting, again, as one of these examples of team-based work um, to, you know, to get to work on that and just see really, you know, immediate impacts in terms of how the work is getting, um, you know, carried out in people's lives. Between you and the interview we had yesterday, which will be a week apart for our listeners with Heather Shattuck-Heidorn, I am rethinking publishing altogether. Like the, the approach you're taking, <laughs> um, I just want to put a pin in it for listeners because it's really important. And and this goes for, for the last podcast too, not to just be stuck in your narrow, like I want to do my science and get my results out there, but to be basically doing a service for the whole field and for, for others by knitting things together, sort of checking things, making sure that they're communicated in ways that the meaning is is perceived the way it's intended and all sorts of of like basically gatekeeping that that rarely goes on in science. Um, uh, so so thank you. And I, I want to close by 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 also noting how you ironically said you, you didn't know if necessarily research would be for you, yet you're doing so much. So you must stay sane by doing some other stuff too. So Besides publishing and research, what, what else do you do for fun? I play volleyball and tennis and go hiking and do a lot of like games, <laughs> various kinds of word games and puzzles and escape rooms and things. Yeah, I, I mean, I try to do a good job of making sure that I'm not working all the time, um, you know, and, and making sure that I'm, you know, taking breaks and stepping away. And I think it helps me do better research, uh, you know, by just keeping me um more focused and happier <laughs> and whatnot i think that's a really important message uh especially this time of year as we all just things have piled up and piled up and piled up uh and also you have a really diverse array of things that you do hiking tennis and volleyball and all of the games i think that's really wonderful anyway bonnie thank you so much for taking the time today to join us on the podcast i, I think we we gained a lot of perspective uh from your research and chatting with you so thank you so much 